It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. If you're an alumni of our Ellerslie Discipleship Training Program, can I encourage you to consider joining us in the alumni network that we recently relaunched? It's an opportunity for the alumni to gather together, to pray for one another, to support, to hear about what God is doing in each of our lives, as well as receive biblical encouragement and exhortation every single week. So if you're a graduate of one of our discipleship training programs, please consider joining us for the new and updated alumni network. You can learn more at ellersley.com forward slash daily. Now in today's Daily Thunder, I'm really excited to talk about the fact that Jesus is engaged, and that we are the bride of Christ. Well, over the last month, we've been walking through like a little mini-series, looking at uh, shadows or uh, pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, and we're actually wrapping that up today. Uh, Obviously, there are countless pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, and we were barely even skimming the surface. Uh, But since the Ellerslie Online program officially ends this week, we're changing the series. So, <clears throat> but really excited about getting into this one. This one, uh, I think I've said this with every single one of these, but this one may be my favorite. So, <laughs> and there's some legitimacy, and I guess I'll know. I guess, isn't it neat about truth? What, whatever truth you're pondering uh, tends to be one of your favorite thoughts. I love that aspect of the Word of God. Uh, so this really is, at least for today, one of my favorite uh, pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, it's a, a, a one of those themes I've been seeing weaved through all of Scripture over the last couple of years, and it's just, it gets richer and better in my mind the more I ponder it. Uh, but I want to read you a verse from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, this was kind of the catalyst, at least in, in my study of searching this all out. <clears throat> uh, but in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul is talking about <clears throat> husbands and wives and, and giving a lot of practical information about how, how they should function. But he comes to this point where he reaches back into the Old Testament and gives a quote from the, from the book of Genesis And then he gives some clarity about the passage, which is really interesting. Uh, He says in Ephesians 5, verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Now, you know, in most weddings we stop there and we think this is wonderful, and and it is a great picture. In fact, everything he's saying in this whole section is quite amazing. But then he gives the conclusion to this, and he gives you the, the aha insight. Listen, this is so neat. Verse 32. This is a great mystery, says Paul. And indeed it is. But he says this. But I'm speaking about Christ and the church. Isn't that interesting? He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And though I've been talking about husbands and wives, I'm actually not talking about husbands and wives. I'm actually talking about Jesus. Because he has a bride. Isn't that a fun thought? Jesus is engaged. I mean, it's been a long engagement. But he's been engaged. And there's this whole idea of this bridal language, this marriage language, that the moment I began to look look at it, it says this was everywhere in Scripture. In fact, you you go back into the early parts of Genesis and you start to see this theme begin begin to unfold and this becomes a major motif all the way through the entirety of Scripture. It becomes incredibly beautiful. Uh, There's an interesting passage in Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews 12 verse 2, that I think made more sense in light of this whole concept. 
the writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's a question. What was the joy that was set before him that Jesus was so willing to endure the cross? And of course, you know, I've heard a lot of things over the years, but it finally dawned on me as I was just playing, working through this whole concept, I actually think the reason that he was willing to endure the cross and despising the shame, what was the joy? It's the fact that he gets a bride, that he was purchasing a bride because of the cross. And because of that, he was so willing to go through anything. Why? Because he has a bride. Isn't that a neat thought? So what I want to do is I want to go back and kind of walk through a couple of these aha moments, at least in my life, in terms of the marriage or bridal language in Scripture, and, uh, and just show you some of these incredible parallels of, again, what, what's happening physically in the Old Testament becomes a picture spiritually of what happens in the New Covenant. In other words, did these things ha- actually happen in the Old Testament? Yes. Are they historical? Yes. And yet God uses them almost as a shadow or as a picture as the writer of Hebrews and, and Paul says in Romans, they become a shadow or a type, a, a big finger pointing to a greater reality, which is Jesus. So I just want to give you a couple of these because I think they're just profound. <clears throat> you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 2, uh, the, the, the book of Genesis is explaining how God formed Adam and Eve. And uh, we know that creation ends on day 6, right? On, on Friday, there's the Great Sabbath on day seven, which is amazing because Adam's first day of life was actually a day of rest, which is profound to me. In other words, we don't work so that we can rest. We rest and work out of the rest. And that's even how Adam was created, which is profound to me. Uh, But in Genesis chapter two, we basically go back and have a rehearsal or a retelling of the creation account. And we find out about the woman. It says in Genesis 2.18, The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Do you know how fun that must have been? I just, that just seems so delightful to me that God makes all these animals and says, Adam, ah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you name them all. And so this creature comes up and goes, oh, I'm going to call you an ostrich. And this other one comes up and he goes, I'm going to call you a rhinoceros, right? And then there was this, there was this furry animal that just seemed to love everybody and was just so kind and was, it was just like, oh, I just, I love you. And he goes, oh, I'm going to call you a dog, right? And then there's this other animal that seemed to be God and just said, I don't want to touch you and I don't want to look at you and I want to do my own thing. And he says, I'm going to call you a cat. Uh, anyway, <laughs> do whatever you want with that. <laughs> But Adam had the privilege of naming the animals. I think that's awesome. No offense to all the cat lovers. Uh, but it says, And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was found not a helper comparable to him. In other words, Adam is the only one of his kind. So it goes on and says, That the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made or built into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, whoa, that's not scripture, but I presume that's what he said. Uh, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
because she was taken, taken out of the man. Now, when you look at that first bride, this, this first woman in Scripture, there are several incredible things that you begin to find out about Eve. <clears throat> For example, <clears throat> excuse me about this throat thing. Uh, one of the things we find is that the woman was hidden inside the man. In other words, up until this point, as Adam was roaming the earth, you realize the woman was there. She wasn't there, but she was there. She was hidden inside the man. I'm going to make some parallels in just a second to Jesus, but just ponder some of these. Eve had the exact same DNA as Adam. She literally was taken out of him and had his DNA. And yet she was different than the man. It's interesting. She had the very same name as Adam. I love this. If you turn to uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 2, Genesis 5, verse 2 is talking about the, uh, the lineage of, of Adam and the, the genealogy of Adam. And Genesis 5, verse 1 and 2, listen to this. This is amazing. This is a book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created a man, he made Adam in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them Adam in the day that they were created. Isn't it interesting that Eve's name originally was Adam? She was just Adam because his name was Adam. And she had his name. Uh, just, I'll get excited here in a second. Settle down. Uh, it's interesting that when you look at Eve, Eve was God's masterpiece. God had already finished the creation stuff. He had already looked at all this and said, it's not just good, it was very good. And then it's like, she becomes, and here's another idea, she becomes, in one sense, a new creation. Creation was already done with. She is a new creation. But in the midst of being a new creation, she was actually like the, uh, the opus. The, you know, the, this is the masterpiece. This is the, and of course, all the men say amen. Uh, interestingly, she was uncreated, right? Because she, she was, even though she's a new creation, she was uncreated because she just came out and was fashioned from Adam. Uh, she was flawless. Again, this is before the fall, so that we know that she was a pure and spotless bride. And interestingly, Adam was the source of Eve's very life. She was made holy for Adam. Now, when you just step back and ponder that, that becomes, that becomes amazing when you begin to ponder this idea that Jesus has a bride. And what's going on in the creation account, hey, though this is very true, it becomes a picture of the bride, that, that God has a bride for his son and that he was willing to endure even the cross and all the shame that came with it so that he could purchase a bride. Well, what is the bride of Christ in scripture like? Ponder this. We, the bride of Christ, the church, are hidden inside the man since the time of creation. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You realize that we have been hidden in him, that he has chosen us in him. Even before he spoke creation into existence, there was something hidden inside of Jesus. What is it? It was his bride. Uh, now that bride is the very body of Christ. In other words, we literally came out of his body. I love what Ephesians 1.22 and 23 says. It says that he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. So just as Eve came from the very body of Adam, so too the church is called the very body of Jesus. Isn't this awesome? Some of you look like you just woke up. The church, 
the, the bride <clears throat> has the exact same DNA and likeness as our groom. And yet we're very different than the groom. We're not Jesus. And yet we are to have his same likeness. We have his same DNA, his very life within us. Second Peter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, which, which, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Did you hear that? You get to partake of God's very nature. You don't become God. Praise the Lord. (laughs) You are not God. And yet you get to partake of his very divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Just as Eve had the very same name as Adam, do you realize that we, the bride of Christ, have the very same name as Jesus? We are called Christians, that we are the ones who bear his very name, that we take on his name. Uh, the church is his masterpiece. Uh, in Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are God's workmanship. That work, the word workmanship in the Greek is the Greek word poema, which comes from this idea of poieo. But again, it's that idea that we talked about the other day, but this, the, it's the inside stuff coming on the outside. In other words, when you write a poem, uh, it, you know, it's Valentine's Day, right? Or it's Mother's Day, or you know, you're, getting, you're getting some sort of a card. So you go down to Hallmark, <clears throat> and uh, it's Mother's Day, so you, know, you, know, you get roses are red, violets are blue, you're the best mother, hoo-hoo-hoo, right? Or something, right? Whatever that is, right? And, and you, send, you send mom a, a Mother's Day card. That is very different than if you, from the insides of who you are, you sit down and you craft this letter, and you just, it comes from the expression of your heart, and it comes out of you, and See, you did, both of them were cards, but it's something different from when, it, when it's on the inside of you. The inside of you thing is your magnum opus. The inside of you is your masterpiece. The inside of you is the, and that's the word that is used here to say, do you know who you are? You are God's workmanship. You were just the very beat of his heart. You were the outflow of who he is, is from the inside stuff. I love that. Uh, <clears throat> just as Eve was in one sense uncreated, we too are uncreated. We were built out of Christ. We are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. John 3 says that we've been born again, right? We're this new creation. Or as 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become one. Hey, just as Adam in one sense was Eve's source of life and she was made holy for him, so too the church realizes that Jesus is the source of our life and that we were made holy for him. And just as Eve was a pure and spotless bride for her groom, you realize we are called to be a pure and spotless bride for our groom. Uh, Colossians 1, and 22 says, He is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Uh, Romans 8, 1 says, there is, therefore no, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right? We're told in the book of Revelation that, hey, behold the bride, and she's in this pure and spotless clothing. I mean, we, isn't this amazing? And that what was happening in the very first bride becomes a picture or, or a, 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 a shadow, if you will, of the reality of what you and I get to have now in Christ Jesus. That's phenomenal! Please, tell your faces. I mean, this is awesome. Now, I think that's amazing. And by the way, this, this stuff goes all the way through Scripture. I mean, the, the motif of, of this is amazing. In fact, let me just give you a couple of them. 
Uh, Ezekiel 16 is a beautiful picture, and, and you can read it later, but Ezekiel 16 is a beautiful picture of, of here is God, and he sees this child, and he says, oh, here you are in all these birthing fluids, and what did I do? I, I, I grabbed you, and I brought you in, and I, I gave you all the clothing, I gave you all the food, I gave you everything that you needed, and you, hey, you are, you literally were set up as a bride. And sadly, in Ezekiel 16, what the bride decides to do is turn and prostitute herself with the world. By the way, that is a great picture of Israel. And God says, you know what my bride has done, Israel? My bride, I've given her all that she wanted, and yet what did she do? She went and just prostituted, her, prostituted herself with the world. That's what the church is in the middle of. That, hey, God has given us all things we need for life and for godliness, and yet what have, what have we in the church done? We says, God, that's great. Thank you. I'll take that, but I want to live in the world with the mindset of the world, with the darkness of the world, with the pollution of the world, and we have literally prostituted ourselves with the world. And the world has crept into the church in, a, in such a way where the bride is no longer a pure and spotless bride. We actually look more like the world than we do Christ. That's a scary thought. Uh, if, if you read the book of Hosea, Hosea is a phenomenal picture of this marriage bridal language stuff. Right? I hear, here's Hosea, this good Jewish boy, and, and God says, hey, Hosea, I got a, I got a plan for you. Hosea says, yes, I want to be in the plan of God. What do you have for me? You have a message? Yes, I have a message for you. But first, you need to experience the message. So I want you to go down and, and marry this prostitute. And if you, I just think, could you imagine poor Hosea? Excuse me? <laughs> I'm a good Jewish boy. We don't, we don't look at prostitutes. We don't talk to prostitutes. You want me to marry a prostitute? And God says, yes, I want you to marry a prostitute. And, and he goes, and, he, and interestingly, God gave Hosea a genuine love for Gomer. I mean, he passionately loved Gomer. And yet, what did Gomer keep doing? She kept going out and prostituting herself with the world. And God, in the middle of that, says, Hosea, now you know how I feel with my people. Now you know the burden that I, I have, that I've given her all that she wanted, and, and I, hey, I've allowed her dreams to be fulfilled, and, and hey, you are, you are all, that she, all that Gomer needed, and yet Gomer is spitting in your face and turning. That's, that's what my people have done to me. But I love, I love what God says to Hosea in Hosea 2.16. Uh, he says, and it shall be in that day, speaking of the coming with the Messiah, that you shall call me Ishi, which means my husband. He says, there is coming a day, and do you know what you're going to call me? You know, you, you know, you know, do you know what you're going to call God? You're going to look at God and say, oh, my husband. That's awesome. Why? Because we are a bride. <clears throat> Read Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm. Uh, you look at the book of Song of Solomon, and it's this beautiful portrayal of, of love and romance. And what the rabbis of old used to say is that, uh, in fact, they wouldn't let anybody study the book of Song of Solomon until they were 30 years old, because, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Uh, but the reasoning was, <clears throat> is because they were afraid that if you study the book of Song of Solomon, you would take it and make it carnal. You'd, you'd make it fleshly. And so they wanted you to at least be mature enough so that when you read the book of Song of Solomon, that you wouldn't interpret it from a physical perspective, but that you would actually see it for a spiritual picture between God and his people Israel. And we would know that it actually is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And ultimately, the Song of Solomon is about this groom called Christ and his bride called the church. In Isaiah 62 verse 5, 
God, speaking through Isaiah, says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you know how God feels about us? I've never once been to a wedding and uh, seeing the bride walk in the door. And I don't know what you do when the bride walks in the door, but first thing I do is I don't look at the bride. I turn and I look at, I look at the groom. Because I figured, you know, the bride's going to be beautiful anyway, and she'll eventually get to the front, and everyone's going to be ooing and awing. But while she's walking down the aisle, I want to look at the groom. I just want to see his facial expression. I want to see if he's going to cry. I want to see. Never once, though, have I seen him just go, you know what? Just leave. We're done. I've, never, I've, I've always seen him just like, walk faster. Come on, walk faster. Walk faster. Come on, come on, come on. Why? Because he's, he's rejoicing over his bride. Do you, don't, do you recognize that that's how God feels about us? You know, I used to think that, you know, we'd wake up in the morning and, and God just goes, oh, bummer. Hit snooze a couple of times. Give me a break. You know, I need some more rest. And yeah, that's not actually how God functions. God is like standing above us going, wake up, 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 right? I mean, he's just, he's, he delights in the reality of spending time with us. Why? Because we are his bride. Love that picture. But this motif goes all the way through scripture. Again, it's interesting as you come to the Gospels, this thing kind of, kind of goes to a whole other level. Interestingly to me, Jesus, through his whole ministry, is walking through bridal marriage language. That he is functioning as a groom proposing to his bride. In fact, it's, it's amazing to me that when you look at the cultural understanding of marriage in the Jewish life back in the time of Jesus, Jesus was fulfilling this thing. And so if you'll permit me, I want to walk through this really quickly. It is so profound to me that when you look at what, what the Jewish culture, the understanding of marriage was in Jewish culture and how you prepared for marriage, Jesus was going through all those same actions. Why? Because he has a bride. So, so get this. Oh, by the way, it's not by accident, I don't think, that Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding in John chapter 2. Uh, in John chapter 3, John the Baptist introduces Jesus as a bridegroom. Right? In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus calls himself a bridegroom. In chapter 22 of Matthew, he gives the parable of a wedding feast. In chapter 25, there's this parable of the ten virgins, right? these ten bridesmaids, as they make themselves ready for the wedding. So I, don't, I see none of this is accidental. But again, when you go back into the Jewish culture, uh, when this young guy was, was about, you know, they were going to get married, uh, the father, interestingly, arranged the entire marriage. So the father would go to her father and say, hey, let's, let's, get, let's get these two kids together. And once they said, yes, that's a good idea, then the groom, the, the, the son, would go over to the bride and he would propose to her. And the, how he would propose to her is he would set a glass of wine in front of her. And if she drank the wine, it was a sign saying, I do. It's interesting in, in the upper room scene, right before Jesus was crucified, he has his bride. Now, it's a little awkward because it's the disciples, you know. And they're all burly men, and you know, and you know. But it's it's the beginning of the church. And he takes this bread and this wine and he sets it before this bride and basically saying, Will you? And they all drink. It's like a pitcher saying, I do. I think that's neat. But it gets really good. If she accepts, then the groom goes to the father and pays a dowry, a bridal price for the woman. You know, I'm going to give you three sheep, or I'm going to give you a donkey, or I'm going to give you, you know, I'm really glad we don't do that these days. Uh, but he pays a dowry price, right, for, for the bride. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You 
we're bought with a price. Yeah, we know we're bought with a price. Yeah, but you were bought with a price. Why? Because you, hey, you're, you're engaged. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as, a, as of a lamb without blemish or spot. How were you redeemed? Hey, you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. So your groom purchased you. He paid a, a price on your behalf. Again, this is just shadow stuff, right? But it's just amazing. Now, what he would do is after he paid the dowry, is the groom would give a whole bunch of gifts to the bride. Uh, usually it was trinkets. Sometimes it was clothing. But it was there so that she would remember her groom, which I actually think is funny because if you're engaged, I don't know how you could easily forget. But regardless, <clears throat> he's going to go away and prepare a place. And while he is away for this long extended season, she needed something to hold tight to. She needed some sort of a trinket. She, wanted, she needed clothing to prepare herself and to keep her mind steadfast upon the groom. Isn't it interesting <clears throat> that we, the bride, were given gifts? And why were we given spiritual gifts? Well, so that we can do these great miracles. <laughs> no. I mean, yeah, that might be a part of it. But that's not, that's not why he's given you gifts. Why has he given you gifts? so that they would turn your gaze upon the gift giver. Listen to this, John 14, 26. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send or give in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. The ultimate gift of all gifts Jesus gave was himself, his very Spirit. And what is, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, it is to teach us all things. I love what John 16 says. He says that, the Holy Spirit is going to glorify me. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to take you by the hand and lead you smack dab in the middle of Jesus. That he's going to reveal constantly in your life Jesus. Isn't that phenomenal? That we were given gifts. Uh, Ephesians 4.8. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Paul says, I, I don't forget, you have been given gifts. Why? Because you are a bride. <clears throat> now, after the groom gives the gifts to the bride, then they take a ritual bath, right? And of course, this was, don't think of a bath like we think baths, right? This was one of those cleansing ceremony things they always had down at the synagogues and the temples. And they would go down this, this stone thing, they would dip in, and they would come out. And it was this ritual, just like the washing of the hands. It was, it was a ritual thing of purification and cleansing. And it was at that moment, once they'd been ritually cleansed and purified, that they were now considered, now they could call each other bride and groom. <clears throat> but listen to you. Titus 3.5. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.25 and 26. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That you have been washed, you have been cleansed and purified. Now, at this point, the groom would leave. Sounds like a great engagement, right? Uh, but the groom would leave. But the reason the groom would leave is because he now needed to make preparations to build onto the father's house. And so what typically would happen is you have these, what were called insulas back in, in the time of Jesus. Uh, and, and an insula in Hebrew is this idea of it's a community. And so how they built houses back then, of course, everything was expensive, 
And so rather than going out and building your house down the road, like we would do, uh, what they would do is they would take one of the walls of the father's house and they would use that as one of their walls and build just three additional walls. And eventually what you'd have is, as, as your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids you know, would, would keep living, you would start having this little community. So you'd have a main courtyard area where you do the cooking and the fellowship and the hanging out of the family. But then you have all these little tiny rooms scattered around, which is these rooms built by the groom to prepare for the bride. Doesn't that sound like something? When Jesus says in John 14, verse 2 and 3, in my Father's house there are many rooms. Now, our, our Southern Gospel songs have totally ruined this because our Southern Gospel songs, you know, are like, woo, we're all getting mansions. So, hey, when I get to heaven, he is going to prepare a place for us and build mansions. Now, when the King James was written, that actually made sense in, in the cultural time period, right? And so the reason why the King James translators wrote mansion is because it was the idea of many rooms. Of course, we took it in our modern day to be like, oh, I get a mansion. No, I'm sorry, you do not get a mansion. I mean, you might, but there's nothing in Scripture that says that because we're not, we're not getting mansions. We're getting rooms in the Father's house. And, and what is Jesus doing? He's going and preparing a bridal chamber. He's preparing a room for his bride. So he's going to the Father's house and he's building upon the Father's compound. Now, it's interesting. <clears throat> once, the fa- or, sorry, once the Son has built the room, the bridal chamber, it is only when the Father says it is time that the groom can actually go and grab his bride to be married. In other words, it wasn't when the son decided, it was when the father decided. And the only time the father, sorry, the the reason the father would decide it was time is when everything was prepared. So obviously we've been waiting, we've been waiting a long time. So this is going to be one good room. If if it's taken 2,000 years to build this room, I cannot wait to see what it looks like. I don't know what you want to do with that. But anyway, during this whole season, during this betrothal period, it was the privilege of the best man to ferry letters and communications back and forth between the groom and the bride. So presuming they didn't live in the same village, and likely they didn't, right? You need someone to go back and forth. And so the best man had the privilege of taking letters back and forth and, you know, going up to the bride saying, oh, it's almost done. It's almost ready. It's almost ready. Aren't you excited? Yeah, he's thinking about you every night. I mean, he's just, whoo, he's just in la-la land, you know that? He's just, oh, it's, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And the, and the bride had to make herself ready. So when the father says, all right, son, well done. The house looks great. Uh, thanks for building onto the insula. Go, go get her. It's interesting. What the Jews said is that the bride never knew the day or the hour that the bridegroom would come. That she always had to be ready. She always had to be in preparation. Well, when you read that passage about the ten virgins, it's interesting that the reason that the five of them were sent out is because they were not ready. They, they, were not, they didn't have the preparations. They were not actually waiting in expectation. It was almost like, yeah, he's not going to come tonight. So they, didn't, they weren't prepared. And yet as a bride, you were to be ready for any moment he could come. Now, typically he came at night. And as he came in, it's, oh, this is neat. The groom would come wearing a crown. And he would come. And the announcement that the groom was here is that they would blow a trumpet, a shofar. And they would announce that, do-do-do-do. The wedding has commenced. Hey, the, the groom is here. And how was is, is the groom really brought into the village, brought into the area? Through a trumpet. So listen to this. First <clears throat> uh, Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
what is Jesus doing? He's gathering his bride. At this point, and this is awkward, so I'm sorry, but I didn't come up with this. Uh, the wedding happens, right? Of course, you know, they, they do the little wedding ceremony under the cool tassels, the little tent thing that the Jews do. And then the groom takes the bride into a bridal chamber and they uh, consummate the marriage. And it was at that point that they were considered, woo, they are married. Now, I'm glad we don't do this in modern culture, but it was the privilege of the best man that while all that was going on in the room, the best man got to lean his ear to the door, which is incredibly awkward. And when the marriage was consummated, the, the groom would typically say, it is finished! Woo! We are married! And the, and the best man would hear it, and he would be like, that's awesome! And he would run out to the wedding party who was waiting, which again is incredibly awkward. <laughs> and they're waiting, and he would go out there and be like, hey, they are now officially married! And there would be a celebration, the bride and groom would come back out, and there would be a seven-day celebration. Could you imagine how awesome their wedding parties must be if for seven days they're just celebrating and hooting and hollering and it's at the end of those seven days that they had the official marriage supper for the wedding. And it was the biggest day of the whole celebration and uh, the whole thing happened. Listen, <laughs> this is hilarious. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 29. John the Baptist is talking about the fact that he is the friend of the bridegroom. He is the best man. He's the one that's been in this whole time when John the Baptist is preaching down at the Jordan. He's introducing the bride to the groom. But listen, this whole idea of the best man with his ear to the door thing. Listen to what John the Baptist says about himself. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John the Baptist is saying, hey, I've, I've been hearing something. Isn't that neat and awkward all at the same time? Again, there's that whole marriage supper thing. Revelation 19, 7 through 9 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true sayings of God. Revelation 21.9 Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Isn't it beautiful how Christ, <clears throat> throughout his earthly ministry, was preparing, he, he was showing these shadows, he was using the cultural understanding of the Jewish wedding to say, do you know what I am? I am the bridegroom. That is profound to me. Let me give you one other quick thought and we'll just close here. Uh, it's interesting, again, this whole wedding marriage motif goes all through Scripture. And uh, one of the things you see, I, I mean, this, again, it shows up all over the place. I wish we had time to, to dive into more of this. <clears throat> but something fascinating that is just, just, I'll just give you to ponder. Over and over again, something significant happens when a groom meets his bride or meets the woman at a well. For example, uh, Abraham takes his servant and says, hey I, want you, hey, I don't want my son Isaac to marry any of the women, the local ladies. Uh, I want you to go up to my, to my family's house and I want you to go find a bride for her there. And of course, the servant goes up there and he finds himself at the well and he's just like, God, you've got to give me a sign. <laughs> you know? And uh, you know, here's the sign. Have her offer me a drink and then have her feed my, give my camels a drink, which was not an easy task because camels can drink. 
right? I mean, we're talking hundreds of gallons of water, probably, that she had to pull out of the well. It's interesting that the bride of Isaac was found at a well, that Rebekah was at a well. It was a woman at a well. Uh, several years later, Jacob goes, the son of you know, Isaac and Rebekah, goes up to the same well and is waiting around, and oh, this girl comes out named Rachel, and Jacob meets his wife at a well. That's interesting. Moses just killed an Egyptian, and so he runs off into the desert, and he finds himself next to this well, and this woman named Zipporah shows up, and he eventually you know, joins the family clan, and he, he marries Zipporah. Where did Moses find his bride? At a well. I don't think those are by accident. Because as you come into John chapter 4, here is Jesus in this place he shouldn't be called Samaria, and he's sitting by a well. The, the disciples have gone into town to get some stuff, and in the middle of the day, it's, all, it's in the middle of the heat, here's this woman, this Samaritan woman comes out to a well where Jesus, who's a bridegroom, is sitting. Now, we understand, please don't, don't go crazy with this, Jesus did not marry that woman, <laughs> just for clarity's sake. Please, let's make that clear. Right? Mary and Magdalene did not marry Jesus. Jesus is still engaged. He's not married. Right? We are his bride. Praise the Lord. Right? But ponder the, again, I think what's happening in John chapter 4 is not just giving us great insight into the life and character of Jesus. It's giving us a foreshadow of something incredible. Because again, all through scripture, you see this woman at a well, woman at a well, woman at a well. And now here's Jesus with a woman at a well. Well, all the other women at a well became brides. So I think there's something symbolic here. Let me just give you one thought of this whole thing. How Jesus looks at the woman and says, hey, give me a drink. And of course, they have this conversation back and forth. And she eventually realizes he's not actually talking about water. He's talking about life, spiritual life. And, she, and he, of course, he, he says, you know, hey, if you actually knew who you were talking to, you would actually ask him for a drink, which is backwards. But, you know, and she says, well, hey, hey if, if, if you could give me give me a drink where I don't ever have to come back to the well, I will take it. And so Jesus almost humorously goes, oh, well then go grab your husband and come back. And of course she goes, you know, she kind of kicks her hands like, well, I actually don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, you are right. You have had five husbands and the one you're with now isn't even your husband. Ponder this. This Gentile, this Samaritan, has had six men in her life. According to the Jewish understanding, the number seven is the number of completion. Eight is the number of new beginnings, but seven is the completion. It's the idea of the, the days of the week, you know, the creation story. On the seventh day, everything finished. Think about this. Jesus is actually making a proposal to this woman. Not in marriage as we think marriage. But he is saying to this woman, hey, would you give up everything and follow me? Hey, would you give up everything and would you just get wrapped up in me? Do you know what Jesus is actually asking her for him to be? That wasn't good grammar. But do you know what Jesus is wanting himself to be in her life? Man number seven. That he was to be the completeness of her life. But ponder this. Jesus is talking to a woman at a well. But this woman is a Samaritan woman. Do you know what a Samaritan is? Half Jew, half Gentile. Do you know what the bride of Christ is? The bride of Christ is Jews and Gentiles. 
And I think there's a beautiful symbolic picture of here is Jesus talking to a woman at the well who is a picture of his future bride, who is both Jew and Gentile. I think that's amazing. I don't know what you want to do with that. I think it's awesome. Uh, let me just make this really practical for us. We are the bride of Christ. And one of the things that is constantly running through all the scripture is that we as the bride of Christ are to be pure and spotless, that we are not to go and prostitute prostitute ourselves with the world, that we were to come out from the world and be set apart and made holy for our groom. And again, I mentioned this earlier, but in our culture today, it's like the church, the church honestly looks more like the world than the bride of Christ. And as we as individual members of the bride, could we freshly throw ourselves upon our bridegroom? Allow him to wash us with the water of his word. Allow him to purify us and sanctify us and remove any dross from our life so that we indeed can be like the bride in Revelation, which is pure and spotless and made holy and set apart for our groom. That is the bride he's coming back for. Not for a harlot. So we in the church, may we be a pure and spotless bride for Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we do ask that <clears throat> that you would, through your Spirit, bring any conviction necessary in each of our lives. Lord, if there's any junk, if there's any pr profanity, if, if there's any aspects of the world that we have just allowed into our life, Lord, I pray that you, through your Spirit, would bring forth conviction. Lord, we are to be holy and blameless before you in love. That, that you want to wash us in the water of your word and that we are to be a pure and spotless bride. And just as you were a pure and spotless lamb who died on our behalf and literally made the avenue through which we could be pure and spotless, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just grab a hold of this life and this salvation, this freedom, and then run back into the world and live like the world, but Lord, that the world would look upon us and say, you are not like us. That, that you have a whole different smell. You have a whole different tone. You have a whole different life than anybody I've, I've ever seen. What, what is it? It's Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you in this, in this day and hour, that you would call your bride back to yourself. The Lord, that you would bring forth great conviction, that you would put some sort of a boundary, a, a, a barrier that would just somehow stop the church from going the direction it is going. Lord, I do pray that you would, that you would purify your church. And if that means persecution needs to come to weed out those who are really in and those who were just on the fence, those who have made it a social club, then Lord, I pray that whatever is necessary to bring about revival and a purity in your bride, Lord, we need that. We need that. Oh, we need that. And Lord, I pray even as individuals, we wouldn't just nod our heads and be like, yep, the church needs it. But Lord, that we would allow you to refine our lives that we would humbly come at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, have at it, remove and do whatever is necessary in our personal lives. And Lord, if that means you need to humiliate us, if that means you need to tear us down, if that means you need to put something that we trip over, if, that, if hey, if that means we need to suffer persecution or hardship or difficulty or pain, then Lord, we are willing to face it so that we could be refined and so that we could be shaped into a pure and spotless vessel for you. So Lord, I just want to say personally, have at it. Take my life, let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Lord, thank You that, that You love us so much that You are willing to die on our behalf. But Lord, thank You that You love us so much that You're 
that you refuse to allow us to remain the way that we are. And that you want to sanctify us. And you want to make us holy. And you want to consecrate our lives. And we thank you that that is your heart. And so Lord, we just celebrate the fact that no matter what we're dealing with, no matter what we're facing, no matter the habits or the addictions or the, the struggles, that there is victory in Jesus. So Lord, I pray that we would turn and put our gaze upon you, the author and finisher of our faith, and that we would run this race well, that we would walk in obedience, Lord, that we would live with your Spirit, resourcing, empowering our lives. And Lord, we recognize it's not our wisdom, it's not our talent, it's not our ability, it's not even our obedience that brings about the victory. It's you. So, Lord, we just need you. Love you, Jesus. Thank you that we are your bride. We just celebrate that fact. We love you. Give you the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.